For many people, coping with the loss of a loved one can be the hardest thing to overcome in their lives. The loss is further complicated when you aren't sure what happened to them, and especially if they vanish without a trace. It's difficult to imagine, but let's try for a minute. Imagine you are excitedly going to meet your friend for a camping trip. But when you arrive, you find their campsite abandoned, with no clue as to where they have gone. You may wait for a while, thinking your friend had gone for a hike or fishing, but the hours roll by and you're left wondering what might have happened to them. Soon you realize that something isn't right, that they may have gotten hurt or lost and you start looking for them. But what happens when your friend never returns, when there are no clues and the case goes cold? How do you cope and carry on with your life constantly wondering what may have happened to them and never finding out? That's what we will be talking about today. A case without many clues, a strange disappearance, and the people left behind who have never given up hope that one day they may finally learn the truth. As always, if you enjoy true crime and mysteries, make sure to subscribe and hit the like button so you don't miss out on any of our new uploads. What is up, Iwu crew? Today, we will be covering the story of a young man who went missing all the way back in 1996. To this day, neither he nor any clues that could help solve the ongoing mystery of his disappearance have been discovered. The stresses of this never-ending ordeal have torn apart his loved ones and left authorities utterly in the dark. As of 2020, Michael Madden's disappearance has remained unsolved for 24 years. And sadly, for most of that time, there hasn't been any new information found that could help investigators get to the bottom of his vanishing. However, at Iwu, we were lucky enough to speak with three individuals very close to this case, and their words offered some great insight into who Michael truly was and the pain and confusion his loved ones went through after his disappearance. Emotions that they are still experiencing to this day. One of these individuals even has a solid theory about what could have happened to Michael and plan of action that has the potential to solve this case once and for all. Michael was a kind soul. From a young age, he was always gentle and considerate with a goofy, playful side. We were canning peaches one day, and, uh, you know, how you, I don't know if you can peaches, but we put them all in a jar, and he was helping us. He was about two years old, and he was plopping them into the jars, too, and we put the syrup on, and we canned them. Then we set them on the table, and we got to looking at them. Here were little bites. He had taken bites out of these peaches, and we had little bites in the uh, <laughs> jars of peaches. <laughs> and so we made a, a batch of peaches with little bites out of <laughs> He was a vibrant little rascal who was always full of life and never failed to bring smiles to those around him. And then one day he came up, I was standing in the kitchen talking to our Dale, and he came up and gave me a, behind me, and gave me a great big hug, and then he bit me. <laughs> that was Helen Purvis, a longtime close friend to the Madden family, and the woman who would end up being the steadfast supporter of Ardell. Michael's late mother, who grieved his disappearance until her last days. The day we spoke with Helen just happened to be what would have been Ardell's 80th birthday. Michael's disappearance was particularly hard on Helen as she watched him grow up. Yeah, I babysat him, got Henry with him. He went swimming in the little wading pool with my granddaughter. and <laughs> Yeah, we, we had some nice relationships. As he got older, of course, he kind of went on his own, you know, and then I didn't see him as much. He used to call me Mama Number Two. <laughs> but despite his idyllic childhood, in 1996, when Michael was only 20 years old, he suddenly vanished. And to this day, there have been no new clues, no new leads, and no hope for Michael's loved ones to finally have closure. So what really happened that day? It all started when Michael took a camping trip, alone. He had always loved the outdoors and wilderness, 
He was a student of wildlife biology at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. And his father, Larry Madden, says the young environmentalist had dreams of one day joining the U.S. Forest Service. The two often took camping trips together as Michael grew up, and one of the pair's favorite spots to visit was Sandbar Flat in Sonora, California. In the tranquil forest, it's easy to imagine Michael setting up camp and leisurely sitting by the fire or fishing here, enjoying the company of his dog, Matilda. What we can't picture, though, is what could have gone wrong and led to his disappearance. Still, Sandbar Flat remains a popular place to camp, and families and young couples can often be seen here, laughing and smiling and enjoying the scenery, completely unaware of the possible dark secrets this location holds. This serene campground on the Stanislaus River was very familiar to Michael, and he had visited it often as a child. On August 10th, 1996, the sky was still dark at about 5 a.m. as Michael packed his gear into his Chevy Cavalier and pulled out of his family's driveway. He had left a note for his mother detailing his travel plans before setting out with his loyal dog, Matilda. Two days later, on August 12th, Michael's friends would attempt to join him at the Sandbar Flat campsite. But when they did arrive, he was nowhere to be seen. What we know about these two fateful days in between has only been pieced together by the stories of the friends who were supposed to meet Michael and one stranger who claimed to have been at the campsite with him, Joseph Tyne. Michael's friends say that they arrived at the dark campsite around 2 a.m. They were a little surprised when they were greeted with Michael's belongings and camp setup, but no trace of Michael himself. Matilda was also missing. And although friends say that she was a loyal dog who would never have left her owner's side, they had to wonder why the two would be gone at such a bizarre hour. Just as they began to explore the area, a mysterious man emerged from the shadows. He introduced himself as Joseph Tyne and began to ask if they were looking for Mikey. But Michael had never gone by that nickname. The group grew increasingly uncomfortable by the minute as they report Joseph cocking his 45 automatic pistol over and over again. Michael's friends waited for his return, uncomfortable and then wary, as the seconds became minutes and the minutes became hours. Finally, they reported Michael Madden missing. Still, they hadn't given up on hope and anxiously waited for help to arrive. However, they did become increasingly unnerved by the presence of Joseph, who stayed by their side for almost six hours, allegedly cocking that gun intermittently the whole time. They say it also appeared as if he was wearing a pair of Michael's favorite boots. Search and rescue was conducted in the following days, but the efforts were fruitless, and Michael's friends began to lose hope that they'd ever see their pal again. After four days, there was a spark of hope when his faithful dog, Matilda, limped back into camp, exhausted and dehydrated. Nevertheless, the relief was short-lived. The dog was alone, and Michael was nowhere to be seen. The trail quickly went cold. There was no trace of Michael, even after the wilderness had been scoured for any sign of where he had gone or what had happened. And eventually... His case completely stumped the local authorities. Over the years, this cold case has garnered much attention from online communities, such as Reddit. One of the implications that always seems present when this story is discussed is Joseph Tyne's involvement in Michael's disappearance. Granted, at first glance, his behavior does seem more than a little off. The repeated cocking of his gun, asking about Mikey and allegedly wearing boots that looked just like Michael's. But two of the people closest to this case have completely different theories as to what really happened. Randy Powell, Michael's half-brother, believes in Joseph Tyne's innocence. I, uh, I think that jo Joseph Tyne is actually um, our witness as to what happened to Michael. I don't think he had anything to do with it myself. 
According to Randy, Joseph's story, as told in the police report, seemed pretty credible. He was allegedly one of the only people with his dates all in line. In Randy's eyes, Joseph was not the main issue in the case. The investigation was... They called the search off the same day that the dog came back into camp. You know, and I don't understand why they wouldn't... Like I said, we didn't find any of this out until recently when I read the police report. They wouldn't let us have the police report because Larry was a suspect. It's true. Larry Madden was at one time a suspect in his own son's disappearance. But he passed a polygraph test and was out of town in Oregon at the time Michael went missing, which made it almost impossible for him to be involved. So he mostly evaded suspicion at the hands of authorities. Whether those who truly knew the toxic relationship Larry upheld with his family really trusted his word was a different story. But he did share Randy's frustration with the slow progress and general neglect of the investigation. Besides Randy's general disdain with how the search and rescue efforts were conducted, he wished that authorities would have had the sense to check Matilda's stomach. I had no idea that they had tracked the dog two or three miles upstream. And then they lost, uh, weren't able to track anymore because of the rocks and whatnot. I don't know why they didn't get some uh, search dogs to pick the trail up to see where she'd come from because, uh, or to, to uh, x-ray the dog's stomach to see if some baby had been feeding her or not. That would answer a whole bunch of questions. He repeatedly came back to this point, emphasizing that it made no sense to end the search when Matilda returned, with no effort to follow her trail that could have led them right back to Michael. If they just would have x-rayed the dog's stomach, that would have said if he had, had any food in his stomach and somebody, if someone had been feeding it or not. Well, why not just get the blood to search dogs and follow the dog's scent, or you know, follow the dog's trail to where it came from? instead of calling the search off that same day. Why the investigators didn't do this seemingly obvious checkup, nobody knows. But Randy wasn't the only onlooker to notice this strange slip-up. Helen came to the exact same conclusion. And they brought the dog back to the camp, and we were all at the camp thinking, oh boy, now he's going to get it for not enough. You know, we, we just knew Michael was okay. And um, they took the dog, and the dog, for she was gone for four days now. She hadn't lost a pound. She was a little... And uh, her feet, there was nothing wrong with her feet. You know, you'd think being up in them hills for four days, you know, something... She'd have little sores on her feet or something. Nothing wrong with her feet. And when I asked the uh, sheriff about it, I said, well, did you check her stomach? You know, see if she was eating canned dog food or if she was eating other, you know. He says, oh, 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 blank, blank. We haven't got time for stuff like that. We didn't have time for it or something. And that kind of irritated me. It turns out this wasn't the first oversight that Randy had caught on behalf of the police. The authorities hadn't towed Michael's car out of the campsite for days following his disappearance leaving a golden opportunity for some of his friends to open the trunk and take things out of it at night, which they did, allegedly looking for firewood. Cops just left the car up there for them to go through, and all the evidence was uh, tainted, as they say, said. They left the car there for uh, three days or four, three or four days before they even towed it. What else could have been tampered with taken out or moved. Something else that is important to note is that in researching this case, most existing theories out there were stumped by one little detail. Joseph Tyne's polygraph results. Most websites and articles say that the polygraph results are unknown. And online theory communities have been perplexed by the hole in the available public information for years we were able to actually get a look at the real police report behind this case through our investigation. And the results may surprise you. In accordance with Randy's theory, the polygraph test indicated no signs of deception. 
Joseph was either telling the truth or knew how to fool the test, which is possible to do. Another popular online theory suggests the involvement of a Yosemite serial killer who was active in the late 90s named Carrie Stainer. We had covered this cold-blooded man in a previous video, and the close proximity of Sandbar Flat to Stainer's target zone seemed like it could be more than a very strange coincidence. Randy hadn't looked into that possibility, but he's heard countless theories over the years and has become somewhat overwhelmed with the amount of what-ifs. Could have been. No, there's just so many different possibilities. Could have been those guys that were uh, abducting people and throwing them in, in wells, too, around here. You know, um, I can't remember their two names. One of them committed suicide, one of them's in prison for life. But they were throwing the people in the wells in the Linden and Stockton area. It's likely that Michael could have been going through a period of depression right before he went missing. His mother and several other people who were interviewed in connection with his disappearance detailed his unrequited love for a local girl who was actually the sister of his best friend, Josh, and the grief it caused him. But one of Michael's closest friends, who actually happened to be there on the campsite the morning that Michael was reported missing, isn't buying the theory that Michael took his own life. His name is Manuel Ferreira, and he told us the story of how he and Michael initially met and became friends when they were just kids. Um, let me think. We moved to Modesto from Lathrop when I was in, like, going into fourth grade. And uh, there was mm -hmm. a river down the road, like, literally... I mean, at the end of my street was the river. And uh, so we went down there like about a week after we moved in, me and my brother, and we were just down there playing, being kids. And uh, Mike was fishing, and so we started talking to him. He was like the first person we ran into. And then we just started talking, and then a couple weeks went by, ran into him at school, and then talked to him there. And then after about a year or two, we just started hanging out. And when the boys got to high school, their bond stayed just as strong. And then when I got into high school, we just started hanging out all the time. And then he graduated, came to college. And then when he came back from college, it was like we were always hanging out. You know, he looked like right around the corner from me. Manuel says that the older boy had such a positive impact on his life that after his own brother got into some trouble and was out of the picture, he really viewed Michael as an older brother. Yeah, he was like my older brother because my brother got in trouble. My parents sent him out to Oklahoma to my grandparents'. And, uh... So it's like he was like my brother, you know, like substitute brother. <laughs> the two had grown up together, been through good times and hard times at each other's side. And Manuel knew Michael's personality and quirks like the back of his own hand. One trait that was very obvious to anyone who knew Michael was his introversion. Uh, he was really, really to himself. He wasn't really super social. And so uh, it was like he had his little, like our little close group of friends. And then he had a couple friends up here. But for the most part, Michael was a bit of a loner. Someone who enjoyed solitude and was comfortable being by himself. Even in the pits of heartbreak, Manuel could never accept that Michael would have ended his own life. It just wasn't like him. And think him as a suicidal person, to be honest. That was the one thing mm -hmm. that we tried talking to us about. And he would not have done that. So if Michael didn't end his own life that day in the woods, what happened? Manuel firmly believes there was foul play involved at the hands of none other than Joseph Tyne. In fact, Manuel was the person to identify Joseph in a lineup as the mysterious man they had seen at the campsite that day. Manuel told us his story of that fateful night and the events leading up to it. Michael and Manuel's tight-knit group of friends from school liked to go on fishing trips. Occasionally, night fishing. When they weren't out in nature doing something fun, they'd always hang out at somebody's house together, partying or just chilling out. One night, someone suggested that they all take a spontaneous trip to watch an upcoming meteor shower in a nearby town. But after piling into the car and beginning this impromptu road trip, the group decided that since Michael's campsite was on the way, they'd go and visit him as a surprise. You see, they happened upon Michael's abandoned campsite and only accidentally discovered that he was missing. 
And I'm like, yeah, let's go, let's go. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden it dwindled down. And it was just me, Josh, and <laughs> we're going to go. Like, everybody was all gung-ho to go, and then it changed their mind for the last minute. So we went up to, we were going to go to Flairbell. And then on the way, it's like, why don't we just go up and see Mike? Yeah, 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 we'll go see Mike. And so he had no clue we were coming. Manuel says the one detail some news outlets had gotten wrong is who was there that night. He told us the group of four consisted of only himself, Josh, Josh's girlfriend, Shannon, and another girl named Ramona. As Josh's truck finally rolled down the long and bumpy hill towards the campsite, Manuel and the others could see Michael's campfire burning in the distance. As they approached, they began to call out for their friend, and that's when their happy and carefree night suddenly came to a screeching halt. The following is Manuel's detailed account of the unnerving experience they had that night 24 years ago, the memories of which still haunt him to this day. And then, uh, so we start walking, and this guy just pops up, and he's like, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? And he's got a gun, and he's pointed at us. We're just like, whoa, we're here to see Mike. He never said anybody was coming. He's gone. He left. He took off that way. Oh, by the way, I saw someone with three eyeballs over there. And they're just like, whoa. And then Ramona's like, this is like a horror movie. And it was just the rest of the night, we were just sitting there listening to him talk to himself, do stuff. And I believe he was making methamphetamine. And Michael stepped up on his spot. And Joey killed him and disposed him because up here where I live at people go missing all the time and they'll find their body two or three years later you know or a year later or six months but the Tuolumne County Sheriff's Department dismissed it as if he'd fallen and gotten hurt and were saying that an animal wild animals probably ate him or dragged him off whatever but somebody would have found something throughout this year so I believe Joey did something and did it pretty good. We asked Manuel if he thought it was possible that Joseph was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. You had to he didn't meet him face to face. I tried to shake his hand. He wouldn't shake my hand. And he wouldn't look in my eyes. He says there was just too many weird signs that something was seriously off. Instantly when I saw him it was like, oh you know, like the samurai have a thing they call play and you have an extra eye or whatever that you can see or feel and I felt that instantly when, when he was in our presence you know and if that wasn't enough to completely spook the young group of friends what Joseph allegedly did next certainly creeped them out we asked Manuel if it was true that Joseph had continuously cocked his gun for the six hour period yeah, he just kept cocking it off and on. And then he would, like, talk to something in the bushes or to himself. And, like, he had said that, you know, he shot at something with three eyeballs. And that's when we were just like, whoa. The thing about this case, as you're probably starting to notice, is that the opinions on both sides are backed up with the slim evidence that is available. But nobody can prove that the other side is wrong. Randy believed that Joseph was an honest man who had his facts straight when questioned. I think that he knows, I think he was telling the, the stuff that he's talking, saying is true. The, the days that he said to Michael, it was a Monday, I think, I'm pretty sure, I'll see my notes here, that Michael took off, that, that they took off to go fishing, and that's the last time Michael was seen, and that Michael had went up to uh, the phone to call Josh, on uh, Monday, well, Josh says it was Sunday. And so Josh's days are screwed up. Uh, today was so Michael just was on Monday, just like Joey says. But on the other hand, Manuel thinks that Joseph's facts may have been all a big show to deflect the attention away from himself. He's not convinced by the lie detector results either. Yeah, and Randy said that Joey's the one that gave them the best information. And I'm like, no, he probably gave you guys misinformation. And there's ways to the lie detector. Like, I was reading about that. There was a Marine who uh, was accused of some stuff, and he uh, 
he had gotten nervous, so he was holding, taking a poop, and he passed the lie detector, even though he was clearly lying. And then he went back and, you know, wound up confessing, and they're like, how'd you pass the lie detector? He's like, I don't know. And then they found out that holding, going poop, or squeezing your anus will make you pass a lie detector because it doesn't allow the, the pickups to pick up what they're supposed to pick up because there's constant tension oh Manuel certainly has a point. Over the years, the accuracy and confidence in the once revered polygraph or lie detector test has greatly declined as the machine's shortcomings become more evident. The somewhat antiquated machine, invented in 1921, depends on an unreliable science measuring physiological changes, such as heart rate and blood pressure, along with levels of sweat and breathing rates, in order to supposedly determine if someone is being honest or not. There's a discrepancy in the data. While the American Polygraph Association claims that correctly performed polygraphs are accurate more than 90% of the time, most modern law enforcement officials place the accuracy much lower, at about 70%. For this reason, most courts of law do not allow the use of polygraph evidence. Overall, the test produces far too many false positives and false negatives to make it more reliable than, say, the average coin flip. And, like Manuel said, there are countless ways for criminals, both seasoned and amateur, to manipulate their own bodily responses like slowing down their breathing to lower their heart rates and throw off the results. All the same, many investigators have said that while polygraph results don't prove or disprove anyone's innocence, they do offer valuable insights and direction for the police to follow. In Michael's case, it is important to remember that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And Joseph Tyne obviously seemed trustworthy enough to investigators at the time of his questioning. The timeline he laid out in the police report made it seem like he and Michael had just casually struck up conversation here and there, lending each other sodas or ice. Just harmless little interactions that you'd expect two new acquaintances to have. But in Manuel's eyes, this borrowing went a little too far and became suspicious when Joseph was still using Michael's things after he went missing. He's, he's drinking and eating Mike's food, you know, 10 hours after Mike disappeared. So he already knew Mike was gone. He knew Mike wasn't coming back at that point. That's what, that's what it tells me. We showed up 10 hours after the last time. Actually, he said it was at around sunset, a little before sunset. We showed up at like 2 in the morning. So at that time, sun was sitting at 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, five hours after he disappeared. You're already eating his stuff, wearing his shoes, and drinking his beverages, and burning his firewood. You know he's not coming back. But the police seemed to look the other way when it came to any strange behavior Joseph exhibited. Randy just don't grasp that part. He's like, Joey was completely cooperative with us. No, Joey disappeared for five days after Michael disappeared. Joey walked out of that campsite not to be seen for five days. He taped up his pants from his ankles to his feet. Why did he do that? To stop the scent of the tracking dogs. Manuel only recently reconnected with Randy, and ever since, the two have been working in tandem to try to finally put an end to this arduous case. As Randy was far older than Michael and his friends and lived in another city, the two barely knew each other back in 1996, but now it seems that these two men, along with Helen, are among the few people still actively fighting for a resolution to what happened to Michael. For Manuel, he wants closure for what happened to his friend. For Randy, he wants to bring his half-brother home and bury him in a special spot that he's had picked out for some time. Ardell's obituary listed Michael as one of her remaining survivors. Even in her final days, she had never let go of the belief that he was still alive somewhere out there. All these years later, Michael's other friends seemed to have moved on and started new lives. 
Although Manuel did say he was still in contact with Shannon, who also hopes to see justice for Michael. The whole ordeal has been a struggle for Manuel, and he says the PTSD he developed after this traumatic loss and frightening encounter caused him many sleepless nights and sadly held him back from ever taking his own kids camping yet. I've got I got a 19-year-old daughter, and, or a 23-year-old daughter, 19-year-old son, 16-year-old, 14-year-old, and an 11-year-old, and they went camping for the first time this year. But he isn't ready to let go of hope that a breakthrough in this case could finally lead authorities to the truth. He's thought over this case from start to finish for no small time, combing his brain for any helpful details. And the key to cracking this case, in his mind, are the boots. Manuel just knows that the boots Joseph was wearing that day in the woods looked just like a pair that Michael had owned. Back in 1996, DNA analysis technology was primitive and uncommon, and even when it was used in courts, juries hesitated to trust it, as it was so new and novel that the general public didn't yet understand its revolutionary uses to solve crime. But in recent years, countless cold cases have been solved decades after their investigation by genetic genealogy advances, many at the hands of companies like Parabon Nanolabs. In 2018 alone, U.S. police forces stated that DNA testing had been the catalyst that had allowed them to identify suspects in 28 cold murder and assault cases. In 2019 and 2020, this miraculous technology has only skyrocketed the potential amount of decades-old cold cases that law enforcement can finally close. In 2016, remains were found around the site where Michael went missing. For a moment, there seemed to be some hope of finding him, but because several others had gone missing in the same area, the chance was slim. Following DNA testing, the family members of the victim were notified, and since it was never announced that the body belonged to Michael, it was likely someone else. I wanna know if they took the shoes that Joseph was wearing. I tried calling the detective to tell him this is like my theory, because back then they didn't have DNA like they do now. So if they took those shoes from Joseph as evidence, they can test that to see if Mike's DNA is in it, and that's enough circumstantial evidence to arrest and convict him. When Manuel was unexpectedly reconnected with a family member through DNA testing, he had an epiphany about Michael's case. It clicked in my head. I was like, holy sh**. Like, do they have the shoes that Joey was wearing? The, the high tech, the, you know, the hiking boots. If they have them, they can now test it because today's DNA is way better than, you know, 95's DNA, 96's DNA. And if Michael's DNA is in those shoes, that's the evidence, that, that's the only evidence they need. And I started researching more in all these cases, and that, that right there is enough evidence. You have a dead person's shoes on, you know, start talking. Manuel needs three things to test out this theory. DNA from a relative of Michael, DNA from Joseph Tyne, and a DNA sample collected from the boots. As Michael's half-brother, Randy could satisfy the first requirement. And luckily for Manuel, Joseph's DNA is already in the criminal database because he has been convicted of other crimes in the years since Michael's disappearance. Since that since yeah. the Sandbar incident, Joey's been arrested multiple times for drug charges. He had a coffee cup full of methamphetamine and Benarosa. So that tells me that he was a cooker, because why would he have a coffee cup full? Why wouldn't he have it in another container? My brother cooked meth. My brother's in prison right now. The possibility that Joseph was cooking meth at the Sandbar Flat campground has weighed heavily on Manuel's mind. In fact, one of Manuel's family members is serving jail time for trouble they got into with meth. And he asked him for his opinion on the situation. The two agreed that the signs seemed to point to some strange and potentially illegal behavior. Uh, Jody was doing something on a screen when we first walked up. He had this screen and he had a car battery with the Christmas tree light bulb for his camp light. And I mean, it was just creepy. And then uh, all said and done, my brother, I was talking to him about some stuff. And he's like, yeah, man, I remember breaking down phosphorus and growth flares, da, 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 da. And he described the process of what Joey was doing. 
in the beginning of the conversation, I said I believe Mike walked up on Joey cooking that. And Mike was super, super environmental. I mean, you didn't throw a cigarette back out in front of him. Emmanuel said it wouldn't be out of character for Michael to protest somebody polluting the environment in this way, and that if Joseph really was working on drugs out there in the campsite, Michael may have confronted him about it purely out of concern for nature. Joseph may not have been happy to be confronted or have anyone discover his illegal activities. We had caught a bunch of catfish, and uh, I had a crossbow pistol, and uh, Josh was like, kill it, and he shot it. Like, we eat these catfish. We don't just catch them to catch them. Like, we were catching them to eat them. And so Josh shoots one of them with the crossbow, and Mike started crying. He had compassion. Like, we were going to eat that catfish. It was going to die no matter what, but the way it died pissed him off. All the pieces have fallen into place for Manuel to test this theory. The only missing link is the pair of boots. Manuel wrote to the sheriff's department back in the beginning of 2020, asking if they had collected and kept the shoes in Michael's case file, but didn't get a response. Uh, that would have to have been like in January or February. I don't even know if they have the shoes in evidence. Like, I, that's, I just called and left him a message. Hey, Manuel, Matt and Kate, blah, 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 hoping that... Uh, you guys still have the evidence box and if you have the high tops that Joey was wearing, it would be really cool to test it for DNA of Michael and that could be your evidence right there. Uh, please get back to me. And that's what, you know, I left up my phone number and get back. It seems obvious to Manuel that investigators should have taken Joseph's boots that day after questioning him as Manuel had made it clear to them that he thought they resembled Michael's. Regardless, he contacted them again and finally got the response that they were going to check for the boots. Yeah, and I believe that that's going to be, like, the breaker right there. Like, it's going to be the icebreaker. And Joey, see, the whole thing about the shoes is, so if Michael, well, we'll go back to circumstance. Let's say Michael put on his fishing shoes and walked down to the river and left his, his, his hiking boots behind, right? And then Michael never came mm-hmm. back, and Joey's like, oh, hey, three pair of shoes, cool. Oh, you know, because he's already drinking his soda and eating his sandwiches and burning his fire. Like, right. We're on that scenario that Michael just disappeared. So then Joey takes his shoes, but then when we're like, hey, those are Joey's shoes, he's like, no, they're not, they're mine. And he told the police the same thing. But we told the police that those were Michael's shoes. So the police should have taken those shoes as evidence just that. However, a saddening common thread in this case seems to be the law enforcement's lack of interest in any helpful theories or through the investigation. Both Helen and Manuel were perplexed as to why their ideas were shot down. They were essentially told to stay out of police business. When Manuel pitched one of his theories to police, he didn't receive a positive response. Sheriff's Department didn't care to hear any of that. It's like... They're like, oh, Modesto's big, blah, 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 nah, nah. <laughs> Like, no, investigate. Oh, this ain't, this ain't some TV show. Well, no, it needs to be. A second attempt didn't go much better. I told the police that. They, they told me not to play detective. It's like, you guys ain't doing your job, you know. I'm going to give you all of the thoughts I got going in my head. All the same, Manuel continues to fight for this lead. Like, I know those were my shows. We went to Tracy to the high-tech outlet and we bought shoes. His other shoes that he fished with were throwing. So he might have been wearing his fishing shoes, no, the shoes to get wet. But his hiking boots, Joey was wearing them. Even that night, when they still had hope that Michael could return, Manuel had an eerie feeling that Joseph was acting as if Michael wasn't coming back. If Joey's story is correct, then... Yeah, Mike, you know, Mike went fishing, left his stuff behind, and then Joey just forged through it. And that's the other thing is Joey was drinking sodas out of the ice chest when we got there. And uh, that was creepy right there. Just to, like, drink the last soda in somebody's ice chest, knowing that they're gone they've been out for, like, the whole day. And the theory doesn't stop with Joseph. Over the years, various clues have popped up that make this case even more twisted and convoluted. We asked Manuel about a name he mentioned in the police report. 
Paul O'Neill. To understand this man's involvement, it's important to recognize Michael's infatuation and devotion to his best friend, Josh Roca's sister, Krista. Michael had been head over heels for the girl for years, but Manuel claims she paid him no mind. And Krista is Josh's sister. Michael had the biggest crush ever on Krista. He would do anything for her, but she did not anything. Whatever she wanted, he would do. Bam, bam, bam. And she always had boyfriends, but she, she played into it. Like, she sugar it on him, sugar daddied on him. And, and that used to piss me off. And I'd even talk to him about it. We argued about it one or two times. But when Michael got Krista hired at a local restaurant he worked at, it backfired on him. She immediately hit it off with one of their co-workers whose name was Paul O'Neill. Krista gets the job there, and Paul happens to work there, and so that Paul and Krista become boyfriend and girlfriend, and Krista ain't allowed to talk to us or anybody, and Paul's got her locked up in his house with his mom and his dogs, and she can only leave the house with him, and all that other crap. But, uh, so it was a really bad relationship. So we were wondering if Paul had done anything to Michael or had somebody do something to Michael. With deepening suspicion, Manuel has reason to believe that O'Neill and Joseph Tyne may have actually had a connection and known each other. Paul was Krista's boyfriend, and I believe that him and Joey have a connection, to be honest. Just from the motorcycle club, or from being around that area. Manuel described how the police gave Joseph's firearm back to him and allowed him to leave in a truck he had allegedly borrowed from somebody in the same neighborhood as Paul. He, he wasn't a felon at that time, and so they gave his gun back. And then the truck that he was driving belonged to a guy named uh, Manuel Medina. And I still remember the, the first numbers. It was 3PM on the license plate. I don't remember the last four. But... Uh, the truck was registered to Manuel Medina out of Modesto, and he lived over in the airport district. And so Paul lived in the airport district. That was the connection. Paul was connected with Joey. Like, that's their connection. Joey borrowed a truck from a guy that lived in the same neighborhood as Paul. Whether or not it was Paul specifically... Manuel believes that the holes in the timeline may be explained by the presence of a mysterious second person. You know, that the dog and Michael could have been driven out of there by a second person. Hey, you need to ride in the store real quick? You know, something like that. Boom, bam, done. But I believe Joey had a second person with him before we got there. Everyone we spoke with had different perspectives because they had all experienced Michael's disappearance in unique ways. One thing everyone can agree on, though, is that the investigation into Michael Madden's disappearance was severely lacking in many aspects. The anger and pain in Michael's now-deceased father, Larry, can be felt in this handwritten statement. As you can see, Larry's words are seething with discontent. He says, It seems you waited just long enough for my wife to die, so it would be impossible for her to attend. However, Larry Madden wasn't completely cleared of suspicion himself. As a man with a criminal history and a habit of taking advantage of those around him, he became a real suspect in his own son's disappearance. Helen Purvis, the close friend and confidant of Ardell, didn't trust Larry in the slightest. In fact, she viewed his paternal relationship with Michael as strictly biological. In other words, he may have been a father, but whether or not he was a good dad is up for debate. Uh, Larry wasn't what you call a father. I called him a biological one. That's about it. He would come back. He'd get Michael all, you know, oh, nothing's going to happen no more. I'm going to be a good father, blah, blah, blah. And then about the time Michael got, gained a little trust in him, away he'd go again, stealing something on the way. Social Security check or anything. He, he was. He just kept things in a turmoil. Him and and Ardell just didn't want him there either. He did basically the same to her too. He kept things in a turmoil. You know, and Michael and Ardell were trying to get things back to normal again. Along he came again. It was kind of a I don't know. 
Helen was fed up with Larry's destructive antics, and one day after Michael's disappearance, she decided to ask him directly to his face if he did it. I came right out and asked him. I said, did you do... I said, where's Michael? I said, well, what did you do with him? Where is he now? I said, there was very much suspicious, yes. Larry, of course, maintained his own innocence until his last breath. And his vehement frustration with the search and rescue efforts seems to point to a genuine concern for his son's well-being and a true desire to catch the culprit. But Helen still saw his actions surrounding the case as a bit slimy and selfish, and that he may have been covering his own tracks. Helen's skepticism helped us to investigate what Larry's possible motives could have been. Yeah, he, uh, very good con artist. <laughs> but he also had insurance, too, from my understanding. He had, uh, uh, quite a, some uh, insurance involved. Life insurance on his son. Helen wasn't the only one with a personal grudge against Larry. When we asked Randy about the impact Michael's disappearance had on his aging parents, what he had to say was surprising and tragic. It killed my mom. From that from that day on, I uh, I was here with her, and uh, she just sit at the table. She didn't want to talk to press or anybody. Um, I think Larry used used a lot of it used. A, used it for his own benefit. Me and Larry did not see eye to eye on anything. I think he's a piece of... I just don't... I I didn't like the guy. And, um... I think he used a lot of it for, uh... self-gain, actually. He used it to get into a retirement home. He used it to, uh... get money from people... There is no way to know if Larry was indeed guilty of this crime, but Helen knows one thing for sure. Even if Larry didn't cause any physical harm to Michael, he definitely inflicted mental damage over the young boy's life. <laughs> he was my number one suspect. I'm sure he was others, but... Oh, he was likable and stuff. Just don't turn your back. In the aftermath of Michael's disappearance, as hope for his safe return slowly began to fade, Helen was there for Ardell. She accompanied her to all the vigils and support groups and stood as a beacon of solidarity and support for her good friend through this unimaginable time. But years later, something happened to Helen, which takes this story down another strange twist. Living in Oregon at the time, she had gone out for a fun night at the local bingo hall. And it was there that she ran into none other than Joseph Tyne himself. At first, the two didn't recognize each other. They had had no reason to meet before and were thus complete strangers. But Helen just happened to strike up friendly conversation with some other folks at the bingo hall. Now, I met, uh, I ran into him a couple years at a bingo hall. Uh, up here in Oregon, or after he found out, I, I told him I, I used to work down there. Well, I did. I worked at the store, which is about a block or two down there. But I, I told him I knew about Manor, uh, Manor Drive, and he said he used to live there. And he used to he started talking about the guys from Modesto and stuff. And uh, so I told him I worked at the store. I didn't say no more. I just said I worked at the store. And uh, he, he started t telling me about this uh, one that was murdered a couple doors down. And he's, I don't know, there was something. And I would ask him questions periodically. He he tried to cheat me a couple times. I'd buy some stuff from him. And that went by. And then I asked him one time if, he said he'd never heard of Michael. I said, you never heard of Michael? I says, how about Sandbar Flats? He says, I never heard of Sandbar Flats. And then I says, well, how did all the pictures get missing out of the store? We always lost our pictures, the, the missing. And uh, he just kind of smiled at me and walked away. And uh, oh, I, cause I said, did you do it? And he just kind of looked and walked away. And um, 
Not too long after that, he he was he, he, him and his dad and whatever uh, the uncle left for uh, Modesto, and I never saw him again. Joseph had inserted himself into their conversation, seemingly excited to meet others who shared his hometown of Modesto. There was this other couple that came from Modesto, and I recognized them, and we got to talk in Modesto. You know how it is when you're, oh, I know that town, and blah, blah, blah. Well, we started talking yeah. about Modesto, and then he came by, and he says, well, I'm from Modesto, too. And I says, yeah. And I said, where'd you, where about Modesto? And he says, on Manor Drive. Well, that's when I started in. <laughs> but he, yeah. he said he did the bicycle, and yet he was up there with a the gun. I believe it. Anyway, he he was up at Sandbar Flats, and he never heard of Sandbar Flats either. I thought, uh-huh. Apparently, this sudden, unannounced intrusion into the group's casual small talk wasn't uncharacteristic of Joseph. Helen detailed the man's odd behavior that she admittedly didn't think much of at the time. First, he complained about his mother not being able to make it to bingo night, but then declined Helen's offer to pick her up next time. I even offered one time to, he was saying something, his mother had to stay home all the time, and I said, well, I can go get her and bring her to bingo if you like. He says, oh, no, no, that, yeah. Moreover, when Helen had brought up Michael's disappearance and asked Joseph if he knew anything about it, he denied knowing Michael at all. But strangely enough, he had brought up a murder that had happened in the area, and eerily he seemed almost excited to talk about it. And when I asked him about Michael, he started talking about this one that got murdered a couple doors down from him, and he got all excited about it and stuff. Like, I don't know if he's just somebody that wants to, you know, be be the big wheel or what. (laughs) The impression that Joseph gave Helen was one of a man who liked to be in the spotlight, the center of attention. He seems the type that wants to have his finger in the pot all the time. You know, get be the attention, be the big, you know, be in the in the line of things. What do you call them? Um, groupies or something? I don't know. I don't know if that's the right word or not. But even so, Joseph's statement to the police came off as genuine to some, and he did pass the polygraph test. It's very possible that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. In reality, two possibilities exist. Either Joseph really did have something to do with Michael's vanishing and has been roaming free all these years, or he's a completely innocent man who was unlucky enough to suffer undue suspicion as a person of interest for over two decades. With all the conflicting opinions and viable theories, there is one thing that everyone close to this cold case agrees on. The investigation was subpar at best and detrimental at worst. How is it that Helen and Randy both thought to survey Matilda's stomach to see if she was being fed or taken care of during those vital four days? And why did no one follow Matilda's trail into the woods to see if the loyal canine would lead them to Michael? Worse still... Why did nobody want to listen to the valuable ideas of those closest to Michael? They wouldn't put it, they wanted it all kept quiet. We didn't know, we, we, you know, nothing, we'd never experienced this, and we tried to keep it quiet. And uh, we didn't take it, put any leaflets out, we didn't ask any questions, we didn't do nothing. And then pretty soon somebody says, no, you spread it around. Anyway, we started talking, and there was this, um, they were having a big fire over there, too. And there was this very nice lady. She, uh, I guess it was a church station. She had finally heard it on a few days later. And she got her dog and she got a bunch of uh, people. And she came out and she started searching with us. In the meantime, I think the back of her fields burnt. But she, something was said about it. And she, she was more interested in finding him than her back fields. That was just her attitude, you know. To, to find a human being, a young man like that, was more important than her backfields burning. But I never did, and I don't know her name, and I would just love to thank that woman. And then she had a bunch of horses and tack, 
and she offered the sheriff's office tack and horses and anything they needed to go out in them hills and search for him. They wanted nothing to do with it. As comforting as it is to hear the stories of such good Samaritans who are willing to help out, it is equally disheartening to learn of the investigation's shortcomings. Perhaps the stones they left unturned could have been integral to finding Michael. Manuel says the search and rescue efforts were limited to only the specified trail. They only walked on the trail. They wouldn't let you go off the trail. You could only walk on the trail. Okay. He's not lost on the trail, people. We have to go off the trail. You have to go off the trail. Can we go south of the, you know? No, they only wanted to go upstream. They didn't want to go downstream. They only wanted to go upstream. Downstream's too dangerous. Well, maybe that's where he got hurt at, if he got hurt. Downstream, where it's dangerous. So it's too dangerous. Yeah, they just, yeah. It seems likely that wilderness search and rescue teams would have individuals with the skills and expertise to venture off trail and look for people who might have had an accident or fallen off of the main path. In Michael's case, we're dealing with an experienced outdoorsman who knew the area well. If the cause of his disappearance was truly a natural accident or a slip-up, it would surely be necessary to check at least a little way past the trail. What's more, Authorities took certain actions that seem inexplicable. Michael had been staying with Ardell before the trip, and Larry was out of town in Oregon. But for some reason, Larry was contacted way before Ardell. This detail frustrated Randy and Ardell, the mother he shared with Michael for years. In a way, they felt betrayed by the group of friends who were there that night and told Larry before Ardell. Friends who had spent countless days over at Ardell's house and had a far closer relationship with her than they ever did with Larry. Yes, Bessie, whenever they would come over here all the time, and they, they you know, Josh and would talk to my mom on you know, a regular basis. And uh, not so much Manuel, but Josh would. You know, Josh and Mike would be, would be friends for a long time, and... Uh, why they didn't get a hold of my mom, I don't know. And she got a hold of Larry, and he was in Oregon. That was really weird. Kind of you know, strange. They didn't, I didn't even know they knew Larry. Helen had some things to say about this lack of due diligence as well. As someone who loathed Larry and was trying to be there for Ardell in her time of need, she was not happy when they found out Larry had been notified first. Why did they call him? Why not, you know, all these kids, they, they knew. Why didn't they call his mother? And then another mm -hmm. thing, too, somebody was having a birthday, and the kids were all supposed to meet down there and go fishing. Well, they had to, they were late. I think it was Josh or somebody was late because their mom was having a birthday party. Well, that, I don't know, that didn't seem... But when we spoke with Manuel, he cleared up the real issue that started all this hurt and drama. And then the part that pisses me off the most it was the, the ranger. But he straight up told us not to tell Michael's mom anything. Wait for us. And so Michael's mom held a grudge against me. I would go up to the store to go buy beer, and she would just give me the evil looks. I'd say, hey, how you doing? She'd be like, you, you. It's like... You know, I'm hurting just as much as you are. And they're the ones that created that. They created that whole situation because I wanted to tell his mother. Josh wanted to tell his mother. We were going to go straight back and tell his mother. No. They had me call my parents. They had Josh call his parents. They had everybody call their parents let go, go or not. Don't let Mike's mom know just in case he ran away. There are so many unanswered questions as to why law enforcement handled this case the way they did. Not only did the investigation break the hearts of Michael's parents, but it seemed to drive wedges between Michael's loved ones. Randy thinks the police department just didn't take it seriously. They just took it as they just took it as some college kids going to a party and didn't really take it too serious, you know, when it first all started. Helen mirrored this statement. She said it's a shame that the Modesto Police Department didn't do more to help save or even just bring home a young boy that had lived his whole life in their little town. Uh, a few days later, Modesto found out he was missing. 
I mean, this was a boy that was raised and went to school and went to everything else in Modesto. But yet it was about five days later before they even acknowledged he was missing. Manuel misses his friend and to this day doesn't understand how anybody who knew Michael could just forget him and move on. Like every year on the 12th, I always watch the meteor shower and yeah, it hurts. When he reconnected with Shannon years after the incident, she shared this weird coincidence. Yeah, and so then the other creepy thing is that uh, Josh never talks to me anymore. And uh, so I finally, Shannon got a hold of me. She just had another baby. And uh, so we were talking, and she went to go out there um, to take the kids to the snow. And she rented a cabin. And when she rented the cabin, they had a logbook. And he put, like, a comment in the logbook. And... Uh, so she's going through reading it, and on August 12th, there's Josh Rocha. She goes on his Facebook, and uh, he went out there last year with his son fishing to his most favorite place in the world. Now, how could that be his most favorite place in the world when our friend disappeared there? But the main goal that Randy, Manuel, and Helen all share is the desire to bring Michael home. I want him brought home. I want him to, for my Randy to be rest. There's a place for him there. We are so grateful that we got the chance to speak with these three brave individuals about the loss of their loved one. They have never given up on trying to find Michael. And looking forward into the future of this case, we hope that the Sheriff's Department finds these boots and finally conducts the DNA analysis test. Whether or not the test is conclusive, the results would at least provide some much-needed clarity and direction to this mystery. If you have any theories or knowledge about Michael Madden's disappearance, please let us know in the comments below.